Hi, everyone. Today is October 24th, 2019. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So our guest today is Michelle Diaz. Hi, Michelle. Hi. She's Associate Professor of Psychology, Linguistics, and Neuroscience at the Pennsylvania State University, where she also serves as Director of Human Imaging at the Sleek Imaging Center. Um, her lab looks at the neural factors that contribute to age-related retention and decline in language production by examining the relationships between structural factors, for example, um, white matter integrity, and um, functional activations and behavior. So around the room, we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Nicole Witcha. Hello. Hey, guys. Before we dive into how language processes change over the lifespan, which is the, sort of the nuts and bolts of what you're looking at, um, as someone who specializes in framing language representation and production in fMRI space, can you kind of describe the, the fundamental neural architecture that supports language production as it's currently understood and, and, and how you work with it, and also maybe how it's positioned relative to other cognitive networks? Okay. Um, well, so I think broadly, at, at a very broad level, um, you'd think of language as a, as a left hemisphere um, a resource uh, or, or supported more so by the left hemisphere, say, than the right hemisphere, especially if you're thinking about language production or syntactic abilities. Um, and in terms of specific regions that are important for language production, I'd say it's more dorsal regions in terms of language um, areas. So, for example, um, some posterior um, supermarginal gyrus might be involved in phonological working memory, um, regions like uh, premotor cortex and posterior inferior frontal gyrus would be involved in, in language production and, and speech. The insula is, is closely related to that, um, closely located to that and also related in to language production. Um, and so these are, this is all based on the early lesion, I guess, stuff, and as well as sort of a, a long literature of fMRI work. So nobody ever says broke his area anymore. Yeah. Well, uh, no. <laughs> I would say no. Poor broke. Well, actually, so so in in class, like if you're, I teach a cognitive neuroscience course, and we used to call it Broca the Wernicke's area yeah. um, extensively in class. Like for, so, for for an undergraduate um, audience, I think that's a good. Um, framework to work with, and it's also it's also not an incorrect framework in the sense that you know there are basic findings that like inferior frontal regions are more important for production, and more posterior regions are maybe more important for making sense of meaning. Those those have really held up the test of time. So in that sense, they're not wrong. Um, I think they're they're maybe we're trying to be a little bit more precise. And and Broca's area a big. Um, a big criticism, or, or not a criticism, but an issue with lesion work is that the lesions are not focused, right? So, so what might be a Broca's aphasia could be a very focal lesion, or it could be a very diffuse lesion. And so, just by saying like Broca's area, it doesn't it doesn't one hundred percent say exactly where you are. Are you in the insula? Are you in inferior frontal gyrus? Probably both are damaged if you have a stroke in frontal regions. Um, so, in that sense, I think we we at least try to be a little bit more precise um, if we can. Um, There's also the the new research um, showing that Broca's area is actually like 18 different areas, right? Like yeah. there's sub areas within Broca's area, mm -hmm. and they don't all respond to language. Um, yeah, yeah. There there is a big debate in the language literature about whether you know these inferior frontal regions are specific to language or are they domain general kind of cognitive control. And I think there's there's even some evidence that maybe it's a little bit of both uh, that there. 
maybe some these subregions, so some areas that are sensitive to language production in particular, and, and particularly executive aspects of language production, and then there are other areas that are probably more domain general that might be involved in selection generally, but not specific to language. Can you tell me what executive function means? I mean, yeah. I hear it all the time, but I, I really don't know what it means. It's, it's a catch-all term, I think, for a lot of different functions. So you could be talking about working memory. You could be talking about making decisions. You could be talking about inhibiting irrelevant information. Um, I think it's, it's... These are all things executives do. Executive, <laughs> yes, the executive part of your brain. Um, yeah, I don't know where the executive function part... Uh, I always thought executives are supposed to make decisions. Yeah. And so that decision would be making. a decision-making place mm -hmm. in the brain. But then I hear it, the word used in a way that doesn't seem to have any relationship to decision-making. That's what confuses me. Mm -hmm. I, I think it can it can definitely includes decision-making, but it could also include something like selection or competition. And, and competition at, at a level that you are not making an overt or conscious decision, right? So you're not making the decision, but there is some element of competition going on, right? So if you're given, if you're a, a good example we were talking about earlier, if, if you're given a picture and you have to say a verb that goes with that picture, right? I give you a picture of, of scissors and you say cut, I give you a picture of dog and you say walk and to you you know you just kind of make those responses but what might be going on underneath the hood is that there's a lot more options for dog than there are for scissors so at some level there must be some kind of competition and um, com uh, different responses you could make do I walk it do I pet it do I groom it and um, and all those things are kind of going on under the hood maybe um, and, and co competition at even a, like a non non-executive non um, non-conscious level um, so I kind of think of it is covering that. But that's too. a real-time kind of process. I, I thought it yeah. also encompasses things like sequencing mm -hmm. and organizing. Pattern recognition, organizing, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted no, you. No, no, this no. a question that <coughs> is a dumb question, but it's, no, to I me it like, seemed like a critical because I hear it all the time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Think, I, I think of it a little bit as like some executive function is, is, is a function that is regulating the processing of other of areas, mm -hmm. right? That's why it gets very mm -hmm. general, right? So it's you're regulating other things and kind of regulating what's going on in lower level processing yeah. kinds of areas. And I also kind of think of it as like neuromodulation, which is a word that everybody says, but you don't really know what it means. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a word that means like four distinctly different things to four distinctly different. <laughs> uh, well, maybe that's so Neuromodulation the is the name given to deep brain stimulation as a general name for all kinds of deep brain stimulation. Mm -hmm. And really? I'm always shocked when I hear people say that. Well, I, what do you study? I'm, I'm working on neuromodulation now. And I think, oh, really? You're norepinephrine, you know? And they go, huh? What? No. I'm working on deep brain stimulation for depression. Mm. I go, oh. I thought neuromodulation meant serotonin and norepinephrine and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it does. It's just to other a completely different group of people. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, anyway. <laughs> yeah, but I think you're not wrong also in your conceptualization of um, as, as a like kind of a mediary or feedback to other regions, right? Because we, we know that about frontal cortex broadly, that it gets inputs from you know, olfactory cortex, amygdala, you know, even, even anterior temporal lobe is, as a semantic region. And um, there, there are well-documented tracks in between those regions and frontal cortex. So then what is frontal cortex doing, right? It's like helping you to select between your, your five different um, semantic items that are, that are activated. Or it's helping you evaluate what that, um, 
that potentially fearful or threatening stimulus is, is means. Um, and in that sense, it's neuromodulatory, <laughs> if you can call it that. Well, one thing that I wanted to maybe make a distinction that was I found really pretty interesting in what you're talking about is is this the relationship between de- domain specific areas and and uh, general areas and the, mm-hmm. and how I don't know how like you said Brokus that it could be a little bit of both. Uh, well, and how those that distinction tends to play out, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, in general, in your work, or uh, I don't know what I'm asking. Um, yeah, well, I, I, so I, I don't think, I'm, I'm not sure it could be the exact same region, right, because then they would kind of be, um, they're kind of opposite definitions, right? But, well, but one thing, and it kind of relates to maybe the original question is what, what can we see in fMRI in terms of, of what, what do the activation patterns mean? And so I think you can get at these s- distinctions between if it's, if it's domain specific or domain, or sorry, yeah, language specific or domain general, only by doing a certain kind of mapping study. So the, kind, the group really that, that does this is at Federenko's you know, lab and others who, who actually map out. They, so they have these tasks that are just um, understanding sentences or just um, or, or some kind of more general um, executive function task. And then they try and map out, okay, this little slice in this one person is that's responding just to the language manipulation, whereas these other regions around it are, are responding to all kinds of task difficulty manipulations. And I think if you don't do that kind of a mapping study, um, then what you're getting, in, then you can't really make sense of, of your activation very well. Um, because the other, the two sides of it, so there might be different um, it might be language specific versus domain general, but then that kind of a distinction may also vary regionally across individuals. So your particular language specific region might be somewhere in inferior frontal gyrus, but it might be somewhere slightly different for me. So this is really a really common approach in the face processing literature. We know that everybody has a face region, um, but exactly where that is in the fusiform cortex might move around a little bit. And so to, to make any sense of that data, you almost always have to do a mapping study, um, a functional localizer, they call it. Uh, that n- approach has not really taken on in the language domain. There's there's probably just one lab who does it um, because it takes so long. I mean, so, th- so the challenge is that, okay, you spend 25 minutes doing your functional localizer or even 15 minutes doing your functional localizer, then you have that much less time to do whatever task you're interested in, in actually studying. Um, so the, the signal that you get in, in MRI is really, um, it's a lot of different things. Um, and it's the fMRI response is very slow. So it peaks after, say, six seconds and fully convolves after 12 seconds. So think of all the cognitive operations that you're doing in that six to 12 second period of time, there's a lot of different things going on. It's, it's very good at spatial information, telling you where in the brain something's happening, but it, its temporal resolution is, is not so precise. Um, Can we move to aging? <clears throat> yeah? Okay, so um, w- one part of this is just, if you can just quickly describe what are the observed changes over the lifespan in, in language projects really quickly? What, what do yeah, you so it, um, in, in terms of language generally, most of the, uh, the, most, the strongest age-related differences are in production. So your ability to produce speech over the lifespan. And what we tend to see is that older adults have more word retrieval failures. They have more increased, uh, they have more tip of the tongue experiences. Uh, and they tend to have slower speech with more pauses. Um, and so all of these are measures of output. Um, you know, how are you able to, to yeah. create that speech? So the failures are one thing, but I'm interested in just 
the slowing idea. So it is slowing in, in terms of normal aging is slowing always considered decline because you know the speed accuracy stuff that people yeah, talk about yeah. I mean is that necessarily a is that a deficit mm -hmm. um, yeah that's a great question I, I mean so yes it is generally considered to be decline in the within the aging um, uh, community um, and it could be the case that older adults are slower and more accurate but oftentimes we see declines in both so that they are slower and they are also less accurate. So we don't um, think that it's a speed accuracy trade-off necessarily. Now it could be kind of a conscious decision that you're just more relaxed and you have a slower, but even when you ask um, older adults to respond as quickly as you can, you, you respond as fast as you possibly can, they're not as fast as younger adults. Um, and that um, is especially true with more complicated kinds of responses. So we might see, um, age-related preservation of a very simple motor task where they just have to press a button when they see a, a, a square. Just just press a button as fast as you can. That They might be okay. And we've, we have seen comparable RTs for older and younger adults in that kind of a task. But then as soon as you have to incorporate some kind of decision component too, so press the left arrow button when you see a left arrow and press the right arrow button when you see a right arrow. This is like, you know, minimally more complicated, but it's a two- um, you know, two responses uh, as your options, then older adults start to become more slower than younger adults. And so then you can imagine extrapolating that out to something as complicated as, as speech. They tend to get um, So mechanistically, slower. how should we think about that? I mean, when we're always thinking about brain like a computer, and if I have a faster mm -hmm. computer, I can get the answer quicker. Mm -hmm. But in that case, I can explain why. The faster computer has a clock that goes at a different speed. Mm -hmm. So is, what did determines the speed at which I identify something. It's not like a computer. It's not the amount of time I have to search through memory. It's not the clock speed. I mean, all of that's just a metaphor for a computer, right? Mm -hmm. what, what's the real thing that determines the speed? I mean, if I think about it in neurophysiology, I could think, well, maybe uh, maybe uh, conduction times are mm -hmm. changed, mm -hmm. or maybe synaptic integration time is changed. Yeah, fast yeah. twitch muscles. Fast twitch muscles, yeah. I mean, all of this is at a level that I can't see anything with an MRI. So for sure, yeah. I would just be speculating, but right? There, we, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Yeah, but but it, it could be something like that, As right? It could be speed of speed of neuronal signaling or degradation of white matter um, causes slower um, response times, like like slower propagation of signals. Um, but you do see uh, the integrity of the, the white matter does go down. It with, does go down, yeah, with age. We with know age. that. But, but the other thing that you mentioned that it's not searching through memory, it, uh, that's actually what most people think it, it is be. in terms yeah. of word-finding problems, right? It, mm -hmm. That normal anomia, which we all do uh, as we get older. But searching through memory is a kind of a metaphor. It, I mean, yeah, you think? the brain doesn't really have a searchable memory like like a computer does. I think we don't know, right? We do, I mean, it's at some level, you know that you have all these words in your mind somewhere. There's some representation for all the 50,000 words that you know. Uh -huh. um, and how is it that we're able to pull them up? We don't, we, I don't know if uh -huh. we know that. Yeah. So it'd be great to do, uh, there used to be these experiments like visual rotation experiments mm -hmm. and stuff that you could time how long it took. Yeah. And then you, you thought, mm -hmm. well, then the brain is actually creating images and all these in-between rotations. And, and I know that because it's linear with how far it has to rotate. Mm -hmm. So is there a comparable experiment to that for some memory retrieval process mm -hmm. where I know that some memory... Uh, 
I takes think, longer, and that means that it's farther down. Yeah, because so remember, I think that if you think of the fan effect in, in like Anderson's classic model of the fan effect, where you have it's kind of that semantic network where things are more or less related semantically, and mm -hmm. you consider them further away, there is actually a proportional huh. change in how long it takes you to find those words. So that not only uh, that rep that tells you how memory is actually structured. You know, because mm -hmm. if something the reason I would brought up the rotation thing is because you could think of a sequence in time and you know what's happening in that sequence. In the memory thing, the reason we think of memory retrieval being slow in a computer is because the computer has to look up the address, find the location in memory, map that thing mm -hmm. to that address, and then retrieve from it. So we know the process and we know that it's linear with some feature. And in this case, if you know that the time is linear with some imagined map of connectivity between mm -hmm. words, then it would mean the brain really uses that imagined map of connectivity with words. Yeah, I mean, I think... Is, I, that, well, are, I mean, is I think, it really like that? I think Nicole's right in the sense that we do have a good sense of how semantic memory is organized in, in some senses that, like, for example, more frequent words are accessed more quickly. So if, you've, if you have a concept or a word that you use very often or that's heard very often or that you encounter very often, um, you're going to be a lot faster. That's so like near the root that. of your semantic tree that you're searching. Yeah, yeah. And then these low-frequency items that you encounter less often are responded to less quickly and set, produced less often and, and more slowly. So what's interesting is this idea of there's more space to search through is that I was uh, mentioning to Michelle that there's a parallel in, in um, so as you get older, you develop a larger vocabulary, uh, but also if you're bilingual, you have a larger number of words. And you see the same phenomenon happening bilinguals. Bilinguals overall are slower at retrieving words than monolinguals. And the mm -hmm. idea is that there's just more words to look to possible uh, words that you could use. Um, so it's not linear, though. They're, so, no, they're not no. twice as slow. No, that's no, true. No. It is definitely not linear. So that means it's not structured <laughs> that way. I mean, I think if yeah. I accept this idea yeah. that there's a yeah. semantic what's, tree what's exactly and that true? memory search... I, see, one of the things that I think we often do is we, we put out an idea. We don't intend it to be taken literally. <laughs> and, and I want to take it literally. Yeah. I want mm -hmm. to really believe it. So if you tell me, I know you and I have talked about this before, mm -hmm. but if you tell me that search is organized by this semantic tree, mm -hmm. then I know what, like this word is four branches out, mm -hmm. and this word is three branches out, mm -hmm. so I think it should be one-fourth long, longer time to get mm -hmm. to that one than that one. Quantitatively, Verifiably, predictably, exactly. right? Yeah. But if we don't take it seriously, if we don't really believe our metaphor, then we can just say, well, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like a tree. And then stop well, and there. we don't know that the branches are the same length. So to kind of add on to that metaphor, in the sense that it might be four steps away, but those steps might you know, vary in terms of their. So that's just equivocating on yeah. the model, right? No, just so suppose the model is, is less simple and more complex to the. F Point you can't verify it, right. and by and, and it, it's more difficult that the that the things yeah. will be consistent. We want to or not. make the model, but we don't want to make it too verifiable. No, it might. <laughs> well, there's, there's if, the, if the reality is complicated, then you have to do more subtle experiments to, to differentiate between this idea and that idea. There's not a directly observable one-to-one -one <laughs> thing. Mm -hmm. So, but but, the, but this point, this gets to this interesting dichotomy between um, the 
stability, so stability and decline over the, the lifespan, right? So you've got this idea that there's, the semantic processing is relatively stable over the lifespan, mm -hmm. the, the semantic-based tree versus the phonological tree, which, is, mm -hmm. which declines. So what does that tell us about the architecture of these two trees, potentially, or in terms of brain space? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, I think it does say something about the organization. Well, it, gets, it speaks to two levels, or two things, is that one, um, the, the idea that this is a lot more complicated, right? So, so if you understood the whole semantic system, there's still like the lexical system, like the word representation system. And so in the bilingual example, it might be the case that there's a relatively shared semantic system, but then the labeling that you apply to each of these you know, piece, units of knowledge that you have is, is twofold in the bilingual brain and one fold in the, in the monolingual brain. But even that we know is not entirely true because there's words like cognates, which kind of sound the same in both languages. Or, um, and, then there, and then there's the phonological layer, which is like the sounds of the words. Um, and I think, I think that the distinction between um, what happens with decline in the semantic system and what happens with decline in the phonological system, like why is one more robust than the other, um, has to do more with its organization. So in the semantic system, um, you know, you can use concepts that you know about deeply, or you can use concepts that you know have more superficial level of knowledge about. And so if you start to see, it's not that the semantic system doesn't necessarily show any kind of decline, because we know that there's um, neuroanatomical decline throughout the brain, some, some areas more so than others, but um, it's not the case that... that every area, there's a spared semantic area and there's this declining phonological area. They're all experiencing some amount of decline. It could be that, you know, the semantic system is more represented more distributedly so that um, it's more resistant to decline and the phonological and that, system, yeah. Yeah, is, that's consistent with MRI <laughs> data, yes. with activation data, right? Yes, yeah, 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 that we have a distributed semantic system, that there might be some hubs in maybe anterior temporal pole or maybe an angular gyrus debate about that. but And that you um, just see broader activations in aging see, populations, right? Yes, that, you, do, you definitely yeah. see broader activations in older adults. But even in younger adults, you know, there's evidence um, from Jeff Bender's lab that you have, um, uh, you know, like different aspects of meaning will be represented in different areas of the brain. So if you're, if you're talking about um, colors or you're talking about sense of an object or you're talking about um, the manipulability of it or the emotional aspects, these will be stored in literally different areas of the brain. And so that might actually help contribute to some of their resilience in terms of, of retaining meaning. Yeah, so how do you stand. differentiate this loss of inhibition idea, like some sort of, this, again, this idea, this vocabulary of decline in aging, right? The loss of inhibition versus, you know, compensatory and sort of broadening of mechanisms and distribution of things across networks, oh, right? Oh, they're, they're kind of a little bit at odds with one another in the sense that... Well, what's the experiment? How does that one differentiate that in an MRI study? Um, well, I mean, I think you, I, well, so I think that the, the one question you're asking sounds like how do you differentiate compensation from, from de-differentiation, right? What, how, what, how do we make sense of these patterns of activation? And I think what the, the gold standard has been to try and relate it back to behavior. Um, and so if you can, if you can relate these patterns of, of increased activation to either better performance or worse performance, that gives you some insight into whether they're, they're compensatory or reflecting kind of reduced um, inhibition. Um, the, the challenge, I think, with some of the uh, 
MRI work is that it doesn't always relate back to behavior. You know, so I, I didn't talk about um, brain behavior links in, for some of the experiments because we didn't find them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this might be due to like smaller sample sizes or it might be just due to some of the heterogeneity of the MRI signal that we were talking about before that um, it's reflecting a lot of different things when you see, you see, you see the where, but you don't see the when and you don't see all the different processes that are contributing to it. Um, you mean you hope you have your control conditions set up well enough that you can, you can kind of subtract out, although, you know, that's, that's a flawed metaphor too. <laughs> so, so what about the higher resolution methodologies, like your, like your ERP? Oh, so my yeah, resolution right. is higher in time, but yes. not in space. And so you have the, the, flip, the flip problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can combine them. And you can, I mm-hmm. mean, one of the challenges, because we've been trying to do this with our work, is, is trying to use the same um, uh, te- uh, tasks in, in both, with both yeah. techniques, but they have to be adapted because mm-hmm. you can't have the length of an ERP study in the magnet and, mm-hmm. and you can't run a, a, get any data that's worth interpreting if you use a smaller experiment. So you, you yeah. can't really translate them directly. So there's some challenges to mm-hmm. it, but you can definitely overlay them. And you do have some past with electrophysiology. Yeah, so it, yeah. It, have you ever thought about it? reincorporating it in to get those time components? Uh, definitely. Yeah, actually, I, I, we've been thinking about doing it for um, for a study. We're, we're interested in this idea, do older adults predict less or more? So this isn't uh, anything I talked about today, but um, but that's a question that's really um, time sensitive, right? So we, it's, it's not as relevant, are, are older adults using... Um, the same regions um, as younger adults, but we, we kind of want to know: are they are they are they working as fast as younger adults in terms of this? Are they making predictions that that younger adults tend to make? Um, and so for that, that's definitely an experiment that's more geared towards ERP as a method, um, as opposed to MRI. So I, I think that's really an important thing to think about. Like if you want to know where in the brain something happens, MRI is a great tool to use. If you want to know when it happens in the brain. Mm, probably ERPs or, or, or MEG. Some places have um, MEG, uh, and that's a great uh, tool if you have it. So I was going to ask about what's, uh, whether there's other things like prediction, other, other um, uh, aspects of language that don't show decline or not as much decline because mm-hmm. you're really focusing on uh, you know speech production and doing a lot of naming tasks yeah, yeah. so are these things um, you know specific to naming or because I when you bring up prediction would be I started to think what, yeah. what other language task would you could you get at without having a production <coughs> aspect to things but you oh, might be yeah. able to do like a prediction thing which who well, you, you're using language but you don't necessarily have to say access a phonological mm-hmm. kind of thing mm-hmm. to get it out yeah, I mean, aside from kind of age-related hearing declines that you might have, or, or age-related visual declines, assuming you know you can account for those, um, older adults are, are very good at, at speech comprehension. They're very good at, at written text comprehension. Um, I mean, they they don't. Compl- these are not things that they complain about. Now, there may be some. Um, slight differences in terms of, of what they're actually doing, like do they predict less when they're reading, maybe. Yeah. But um, but they also, um, you know, show kind of comparable um, comprehension abilities. So so they may be predicting less, so so less kind of anticipatory um, process, sub-processes, but the overall result is just fine. And one of the things that older adults definitely have over younger adults is experience, and in, in particular experience reading. And um, some of the work out of Liz Stein-Morrow's lab has shown that for older adults who um, read more, so they, uh, you know, they're good readers, they read a lot, um, they're 
increased reading ability can actually offset some of their other cognitive declines. So even for adults who have, say, lower verbal working memory, so they can they can retain fewer items in memory at a time, um, they show um, intact comprehension if they read a lot. So it's like the, the reading experience helps offset some of the other cognitive declines. Um, and this is maybe like getting back to the, the other question about like, well, what can I do if I'm getting older and what, how can I help offset some of these um, age-related declines or is there any way to offset age-related declines? And I think adaption is, is certainly uh, one very effective mechanism. Um, so kind of keep challenging yourself and, and find new strategies and ways to, to do the tasks that you used to do, just do them in a different way. Um, so does that mean that whatever's going wrong with in your, in your brain as you get older is not happening in a uniform way. I mean, a lot of times people talk about aging and they say, well, age-related decline, it sounds like they're thinking that every neuron in the brain is getting less good at doing its job. Mm -hmm. And it's completely uniform and global. No. But from a pathological point of view, that's not really what's happening. Certain parts of the brain are... Yes going away bad and certain of them are just fine and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so is there an opportunity to to use that to you know structure our ideas about the strategies that people take they, yeah. they pick strategies that that rely on parts of the brain that aren't declining very much. Right, right. Or, or uh, kind of <clears throat> compensate for the areas that are declining, right? So like the, the areas that decline for sure, hippocampus shows very strong age-related decline and frontal cortex shows very strong age-related decline. And then um, regions that are, are less affected are all the primary cortices. So primary visual cortex, primary motor cortex, primary auditory cortex. Um, and so um, I don't know of a way that you could maybe try and rely more on those. Well, uh, so a good, a good, um, Example might be, okay, let's say your frontal cortex is declining and you're, you're becoming more forgetful. You have less, um, uh, le you just, you know, you're not remembering things like you used to. Um, a good strategy might be put your reminder out somewhere where you'll see it, right? So then you don't have to remember you, you see the visual cue and you think, oh, okay, I need to take the garbage out because <laughs> right? I, I left it out or something like that, you know, or you, you know you have to take um, your medication and you're, you're kind of having problems with your recency memory, you don't remember if you've taken it today yet or not, use a pill box, right? So you have, and it's, it's either there or it's not. If it's there, you didn't take it, and if it's not, then you took it. And so you don't have to try and remember um, whether or not you took it. You kind of develop a strategy that... Those sound familiar. Those sound like things people write <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, right. But so like, so, so different. So you mean like what kind of um, strategies could we offer as neuroscientists? No, no. Or? I thought that was, that, that was fun. That's exactly <laughs> what so, but, but that does come back around to the question, I guess, that Todd was asking before is like, what are, how much of, of language is just on top of these other systems? Mm -hmm. And as these other systems decline, it's actually the other systems that are problematic. Yeah, and language goes with language. it. And yeah. so, I mean, if you think of all these, like the bootstrapping idea that all of these other systems were in place evolutionarily way before language. And so mm -hmm. maybe when these go, language goes with it in these mm -hmm. ways because mm -hmm. it depends on the underlying system. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, yeah, I think I think that's not incorrect. You know, so th there has been some. Um, I'm thinking of age specific aging um, research that has compared, say, online tasks versus offline tasks. And as soon as you add this offline measure, where it adds a working memory component to a language task, that task automatically becomes much harder for the older adult. And um, you know, so that's an a, I think a good example of how 
what you're seeing then, if you didn't take that into account and you didn't know that, you would say, oh, there's these large language-related declines. But in fact, it's actually because you've added this working memory component to it, and it's not the language declines per se, but it's, it's um, the working memory declines. And I would say also, so reading probably doesn't have a very long evolutionary um, history to it. You know, it's like mm-hmm. hundreds of years, <laughs> right? But it doesn't to, decline. But, um, <laughs> well, no, it doesn't decline. And I, but I would say that um, like comprehension, language, communication certainly has a longer evolutionary history. And I think, uh, I mean, I always think of reading as building off of the auditory system, you know, the, the speech comprehension system and what we already know. Because we, we know for sure that um, phonology matters and phonology influences how you learn to read and your mapping, that the extent to which you can map on the written form of the word to the oral form of the word is is um, highly predictive of how good of a reader you're going to be. Um, so I don't think we could be such good readers if it didn't capitalize on, on pre-existing systems that are already in the brain. So, that, so basically what, what you, Nicole and Todd, were saying was, was the crux of my original question, which was how do these networks, in terms of the fMRI activations, how are they positioned relative to the each other, and what are, what is the overall result that you're seeing in terms of shifts in the way? Because presumably you could see if if this is a one network that sort of lives on top of another versus two separate networks that are recruited differently. And mm-hmm. you've you've done those studies that sort of show that there are differences in the aging brain and what networks are recruited, right? Mm-hmm. So. Do we talk about that already? I already forgot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if we've talked about it yeah. specifically here, um, but I, I do think that what you see with older adults in terms of these increases in activation are oftentimes not in the language-specific regions. So they're they're not in the core language um, areas that that you might expect. But instead, it looks like older adults are either intentionally recruiting or kind of as a as a part of their age-related differences, they're just recruiting more of these kind of um, regions outside of the language network. And whether or not that's actually helpful or harmful, um, I think kind of depends a little bit on the experiment. There hasn't been 100% consistent results. Most of the time, what we find is it's evidence in support of dedifferentiation, that older adults recruit more regions of the brain, and this is not helpful. It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't correlate with behavior, and it doesn't it doesn't correlate with behavioral improvement. Um, so that's the the what we've seen most often. Um, I would say in the two experiments I'm thinking about that I didn't um, talk about today, um, those are these were very complicated tasks that I had the older adults do. And so part of my more recent thinking is that what extent is is this dedifferentiation result that we're seeing a product of the extra tasks that the participants had to do. So if you ha- give anyone a really complicated task and it's kind of, it's not that it's it's beyond their ability, but it's, it's just not like natural language processing. Um, is that, um, re- does that reflect the, the normal language production demands or does it um, reflect kind of the influence of the artificial task? Um, and that's where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of moved towards trying to make things a little bit more naturalistic, um, just giving people very simple tasks to do, um, just say this, name this picture, uh, say this word um, to try and try and minimize the the possibility that it's it's due to these extra um, task related demands. Um, so, do you see more variance in in an aging group versus a young? Yes, yeah. that's another versus young adults. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, I mean adults. Yeah, not not children. Yes, yes. So I only study adults, so twenty years old to eighty yeah. years old. Um, but uh, there's definitely more variability in older adults, and I think that's that's a. a, a 
challenge for research in the sense that you get you just get more variable data. But I think that's also um, uh, something I didn't talk about earlier. Is it's it's actually kind of um, uh, maybe a, a ray of light in the sense that some people don't decline as much as others. Um, so you, there, there is just a lot of variability, and you have better and worse trajectories um, on that aging pathway. You know, we, we all might be getting slower, but we, um, some of us might be staying flatter than others. Um, and so that's kind of encouraging. It's encouraging if you think you're going to be on the, on the, on the, right on the slow progression <laughs> trajectory. It's discouraging if you think you're on the other one. It, the trick is figuring out which, which one, one you're on. <laughs> you're on. Oh, yeah. Right, excellent. Thank you for joining us. This has been Michelle Diaz. Thank you, Michelle. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.